Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy podcast, and we discuss where those three subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling. I am back with another week with my lovely and amazing wife, Laurel. Hello. I am very, very excited to be here. I have been wanting to do a podcast such as this podcast for a while. Laurel, you can testify that I've wanted to talk about classic Disney animation. And I felt that the Midnight Myth is one of the best mechanisms by which we can, from a contemporary, modern, 2019 perspective, go back to some of the classic Disney animations, discuss what they mean, what they should mean now, what they meant then, and sort of the inspiration because if there is a modern fairy tale if the fairy tale exists in this digital world by and large it is disney that made it so disney who took a lot of stories in particular in the like mid 20th century put them into animated features and revitalized an interest in the american consciousness to this bizarre and weird thing called the fairy tale. So I wanted to talk about classic Disney, and I wanted to talk about the fairy tale. So I'm excited to bring to you, dear Midnight Myth listeners, my favorite listeners of all listeners of podcasts, our episode on Sleeping Beauty. I think that's a great way to introduce this podcast because uh, while we have a longstanding interest in fairy tales and in Disney and the way that they have shaped popular culture and our understanding of age-old stories, it's also a really interesting time to be talking about those classic uh, adaptations of the fairy tales because we are seeing 
every couple of months, Disney put out a new adaptation of its classic uh, fairy tale adaptations. So I, I think it's interesting to go back to the uh, sort of bedrock of what made Disney Disney, which was adapting fairy tales out of the public domain and thereby creating the authoritative versions of those fairy tales, sort of breaking apart what they were going for and also exploring the earliest and the newest versions of those tales and what they mean to all of us. I guess it goes without saying that we will be spoiling Sleeping Beauty, but the movie came out January 29th, 1959. So I don't think we need to really worry about spoilers too much. You've had plenty of time to see it, ladies and gentlemen. I do think we might touch on the uh, recent, I think, 2014 film Maleficent a little bit, um, but those won't be heavy, heavy spoilers. Right, and I think Maleficent has a sequel coming out too. Correct. So this makes it a little more timely, but we like to talk about popular culture. So before we dive too deep into our subject matter, and there is a lot for us to talk about tonight, um, Laurel, I know there's been a lot of chatter, a lot of things happening on the Midnight Myth sphere. I just want to call out that Laurel did something amazing for the Midnight Myth. She designed a whole new line of merchandise to link with the Wheel of Ka, our sub-podcast about Stephen King's The Dark Tower. And that merch is up on the merch store. And like, I'm not blowing smoke up your asses, everybody. That merch is fucking awesome. Like, well done, Laurel. If you like cool looking shit, you want a cool iPhone case, you want a cool mug, you want a cool t-shirt, and you like the Dark Tower, or you like tarot cards and really cool imagery, go to www.midnightmyth and buy some of that because it's awesome. And tweet it at us. If you tweet it at us, we'll mention you on the podcast. Yeah, so that's www.midnightmyth.com. You can click on shop. Um, and also on that website, you're going to find a lot of fun stuff. So you're going to find our blog where there's additional content. You'll find a link to our Patreon. If you have any interest in supporting us and making sure that we can continue to make this podcast for you for free, you can support us for as little as a dollar a month and as much as $25 a month. And anybody at the $5 Patreon level or higher gets access to a special bonus boomerangarang every month. The boomerangarang is our signature pop culture debate where we play the this crazy game and go head to head in a battle royale between some of your favorite characters in popular culture. Those are a lot of fun. And there's one every month for Patreon listeners of $5 or more. So consider supporting us on Patreon. Otherwise, if you just want to get in touch, tell us how we're doing, give us suggestions or anything that you want to hear here on the Midnight Myth, or just talk to us about anything you're feeling, hit us up on social media. The best place to do that is Twitter. Uh, we are at the Midnight Myth on Twitter. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. Uh, I think that's it. Otherwise, uh, in a couple of days, uh, in a day or two, we're going to have a new episode of The Wheel of Ka, Derek and Steve's Dark Tower podcast uh, up in your feeds. So pay attention for that. If you are listening along and you're a Dark Tower fan, make sure you head back to that website, www.midnightmyth.com uh, to access our Audible offer. You can get two free Audible audiobooks uh, by signing up through our link through our website. If you want to read along with the Dark Tower with them, they're going to do the wind, uh, the wind through the keyhole, right? Next. Mm -hmm. Yep. Correct. 
So if you want to get your hands on that, definitely check it out through our link on the website. Jesus Christ, we have so much shit. There going is so on. much going on. That's and thank amazing. you to everyone who has left us reviews in the last couple of months. We are so grateful. Uh, the growth in the podcast has been amazing, and we are so happy that you're listening. We're so happy that you are enjoying what you hear, and we love you. That's it. That's all I got. Okay. Yeah. 50 minutes later, we're ready anyway, to talk. Oh oh, so God. much stuff going on. The Midnight Myth is an awesome, exciting place to be. I ran into a bit of dilemma when rewatching Sleeping Beauty, which we just rewatched the Disney movie. And that dilemma comes in the difficulty to classify what type of movie this is. Obviously, it's an animated movie. But that speaks more to its function and its form rather than its substance. So it's an animated movie. It's a Disney movie. But what is its actual genre? Where can we ascribe the genre of Sleeping Beauty? And I found that it was not an easy question to answer because there's a blend of folktale, fairy tale, legend, and myth. I feel like these are... And fantasy. And fantasy. Well, fantasy is part of those as well, too, you right. know? Um, but I think the like the four bedrocks of some of the greatest stories that we still tell and share are somewhere in the combination of these. And I started doing some research, and it turns out academically they're clearly delineated which is which. Right. Like if you want to go to school and you want to study legends, you will study a particular type of writing from particular eras and particular times. And if you want to study myths, you'll study particular types of things. But when it comes to classifying a movie that came out in 1959 that's inspired by the Grimm Brothers tale. And you ask, what really kind of story is this? I don't think it's an easy answer. So my first question to you, Laurel, because I know you've also looked into this a lot in many ways. Sleeping Beauty, we all know the tale. Aurora, the beautiful princess, is cursed by Maleficent that on her 16th birthday, she'll prick her finger on a spinning um, thing. A spinning wheel, yeah. A spinning wheel. And she'll go into sleep until true love's kiss unwakes her, in which we see Prince Philip give that kiss and she's awakened and lives happily ever after. What kind of fucking story is this? Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a big question. And you mentioned that uh, academically myth, legend, and fairy tale have their classifications. And that is true uh, to a certain extent. There are certain definitions that we can apply to myth, legend, and fairy tale. Those being that myth are usually foundational stories that are linked to a religious or spiritual significance and are crucial to the understanding of a world or a society. They're normally going to deal with gods, demigods, and superhumans of some kind. Um, then there's legend, which is a narrative that is uh, rooted in a time and place and possible historical figure. There's usually some element, however small, of historical veracity to a legend. They're a little more concrete than a myth. And then fairy tales are a type of folktale that traditionally incorporate elements of magic or enchantment uh, in a unified story. So they're usually a short story, sometimes with a moral. And today we usually think of them as being intended for children, although that's relatively recent. Until the 19th and 20th century, they were for all audiences of all ages. So those are are classifications that we can usually recognize, but in reality, 
there's not that clear of a boundary between all of them. There is a constant exchange between all of these different types of folklore. And I think we can group all of those under folklore because they are uh, stories that are shared by cultures and that evolve and that often don't have definitive or authoritative versions of the story. Uh, I like to think of it like there's a, a Supreme Court justice who said something in a case ruling on pornography, asking like, what is pornography? How do we define it? And the I forget who the justice is, but he says, I know it when I see it. And I know a fairy tale when I see it. I know a myth when I see it, but I can't necessarily concretely define it. I'm kind of unsatisfied with that. Okay. I, and I have to say, and, and the reason I'm unsatisfied, in particular with the I know pornography when I see it, because when a Supreme Court justice says that, they say, by virtue of my authority on this court, I can adjudicate by, by virtue of my pre prejudices and personal opinions what one is and what isn't. And when I know it, I know it. And I don't need to define it or explain it because I'm a Supreme Court justice. So right? I 100% I agree with you on that. And that was just a sort of a comparison that I threw out there. But what I'm trying to convey here is that while we often apply those guidelines to myth, legend, and fairy tale, the truth about them is not that simple or not that fundamental. There's much more of an exchange between those types of genres. And so we have often been conditioned to think of this is a myth, this is a legend, and this is a fairy tale, when the actuality of it is that all of these things could be born out of the same kind of uh, storytelling soup. That's exactly where I'm going here. Yeah. Because I, I don't think it, I'm not satisfied in saying I know a myth when I see a myth and I know a fairy tale exactly. when I see a tale. So I found five competing theories of what a myth is. But I'd like to start our conversation with Sleeping Beauty around these five competing theories. And one of my questions I'll have is, does Sleeping Beauty hold up to any of these competing theories or not? Theory one is that all myths are nature myths. Myths ultimately refer to meteorological, cosmological, agricultural, and phenomenon. Sleeping Beauty doesn't really hold up to this at all. There's no phenomenon in the natural world it's trying to explain. But I, I'm not so convinced that that's the right way to look at myths to begin with. It's a common held belief that myths are supposed to describe the natural world, but that presupposes a post-mythopoetic style of thinking that says a story must be about a thing, a one thing, this is what it's about, and that's why people told it. I think it's a little more complex than that. The second theory is all myths are, and I'm going to brutalize this word, ateological, right? And this is meaning that all myths offer a cause or explanation of something in the real world. Here's where Sleeping Beauty starts to get a little more interesting because this is about the birth of a nation, a cause of why this nation exists. It exists because a prince and a princess got married. This is about how a force of evil was eliminated from the world. Where did this force of evil come from? How did it get uh, uh, destroyed? It was Prince Philip future King Philip, who killed Maleficent, this force of evil in the world. So there's a little bit of resonance there. The third theory is all myths function as a charter for the customs, institutions, or beliefs of society. In a traditional society, every custom and institution tends to be validated or confirmed by a myth, which states a precedent for it, but does not seek to explain it in any logical or philosophical sense. 
16. Why does the birthday 16 yeah. matter? Because it does, because that's what Maleficent says. So 16 is a rite of passage now for young women based upon this story. Uh, who gets to determine who marries who? Well, is it determined by love or is it determined by fate? Or is it both? These are there in, in Sleeping Beauty as well when that she, Aurora, is betrothed to Philip. It explains this institution of marriage. Um, how do you celebrate a marriage and how do you celebrate a birthday? It's by drinking wine. It's by coming together. All of these things are present in Sleeping Beauty. The fourth theory is the purpose of a myth is to, to evoke the creative era. And by recapturing the sense of that creative era, mankind is able to revive some of its unique creative power. Whoa. This is a little more abstract. Yeah. This is by connecting to our mythic nature. It unlocks something in us that allows us to feel, revive, and rejuvenate our spirit. What does Aurora do? She sings to animals. She brings nature to her. And she is innocent. And her beauty and grace is in, in rejuvenating and invigorating. And the love that she and Prince Philip have is rejuvenating and invigorating. Is it not inspiring of such great creative song that the walls of nature themselves don't matter? And squirrels and freaking owls can become friends with the princess? And then the last and fifth, and now all of these ideas are competing. So let's keep in mind, right. these are all different arguments about what a myth actually is. Underlining all myth is ritual. Myths derive from ritual, or at least is closely associated with ritual. Well, we see plenty of rituals here. We see the ritual of sleep in Sleeping Beauty. We see the ritual of marriage. We see the, the ritual of rites of passage. Yeah, coming of age. We see plenty of rituals in this. We see goblins dancing around the fire as another expression of a more pagan and demonic looking ritual. So we see all of these things linked in ritual. My question and why I bring this up, and I know this is a long point to start the podcast, is isn't Sleeping Beauty a myth? Woo. I mean, huge question there, uh, because the immediate reaction to this is, no, it's a fairy tale. It's one of the canon fairy tales. It's a canonical fairy tale. Um, and there is a lot of context to go into to explain why uh, that's my reaction. But when you put those things out there, and when you point out some of the uh, major thematic and plot elements of the story, uh, you can't help but associate yourself with certain uh, foundational myths of various cultures, particularly the Greeks. Uh, I can see numerous uh, allusions to the myth of Oedipus, especially with the fact that Sleeping Beauty is deeply concerned with prophecy and with uh, attempts to uh, foil or outwit prophecy. It's a story about uh, a girl who is prophesied to prick her finger on a spinning wheel on her 16th birthday so the kingdom outlaws spinning wheels and she still manages to do it, that's Oedipus. Uh, so there are certainly things inherent in this uh, story that hearken to major myth concepts. Um, 
But to uh, kind of argue on the side of fairy tale, I'd like to, if uh, you're okay with it, explain uh, sort of the development of how this particular story came to be, at least as far as we can uh, understand it and we can map it backwards onto storytelling tradition. And this is going to get a little horrifying because uh, as many of you know who are listening to this podcast, uh, Disney has a tendency to sanitize its fairy tales uh, for public consumption and for uh, children's consumption. Uh, Fairy tales like The Little Mermaid that in Hans Christian Andersen end with gruesome terror uh, and, you know, some sort of subtle... Uh, redemption for the character in Disney end with uh, neat bows and happy endings. And it's no different for Sleeping Beauty. But Sleeping Beauty is especially um, terrible, I think, in its origins. So just a, a quick warning there for you. So this tale, its first coherent uh, version put down to paper is in the 17th century by Jean-Baptiste Basile, but you can see a number of the uh, motifs of it in a 15th century medieval romance called Persephorest. It's got the sleeping beauty, it's got the trials that the prince has to go through, and a couple more of the beats that the later uh, versions of the story will go through. But the Basile version uh, is considered the first sleeping beauty, or the original sleeping beauty tale. And this story is called Sun, Moon, and Talia. It has a lot of recognizable elements to it. The princess, Talia, is cursed by an evil fairy to prick her finger on a splinter of flax and fall into a deep sleep. This comes to be, and she falls into that enchanted sleep and is locked up in a tower to rest for a hundred years. Now, as she's locked up in this tower sleeping, a wandering king happens by her castle and encounters the princess Talia sleeping. He tries to wake her uh, and nothing happens. He kisses her because she, uh, you know, overcomes him with her sleeping beauty and she doesn't wake up. And then he, uh, in a startling euphemism by Jean-Baptiste Basile, gathers the first fruits of love and then leaves, and nine months later, Talia gives birth to twins. So yes, uh, he sexually assaults her in her sleep. After her babies are born, one of them is looking for her breast to suckle and ends up uh, sucking on one of her fingers and drawing out the splinter of flax that was there, uh, which awakens her from her enchanted sleep. So she wakes up abandoned in a tower with two babies and no idea how she got there or how she ended up having children. Damn. It's horrible. And this is only the first half of the story. The second half of the story concerns the wandering king uh, discovering that he has children with this woman and his wife getting really jealous and trying to eat the children. Um, So it just gets worse from there. It's all downhill. Um, After this, Charles Perrault, whose name uh, is sort of one of the biggest names in fairy tales, uh, adapts the story, adapts Jean-Baptiste Basile's story. And he 
calms it down just a little bit because it's pretty unsavory. But he writes what we would probably call the definitive literary version of this tale. You also will know his versions of Cinderella and Little Red Riding Hood and many other classic fairy tales. But he adapts it into a story called La Belle au Bois Dormant, or The Sleeping Beauty. Uh, he removes the unpleasant sexual assault scene and replaces the flax with a needle from a spinning wheel. The princess sleeps for 100 years, and then she is awakened by a kiss from a prince. So true love's kiss has saved the day. The prince and the princess get married, and the princess gives birth to twins. She names them Aurore and Jour, which is French for dawn and day, which is where we get Aurora for the uh, Disney Sleeping Beauty version. Um, now, just like Basile, Perrault uh, preserves that very strange second part of the tale, which detail the uh, uh, sort of cannibalistic impulses of a jealous woman on the prince's side of the family. But this time, it's not his wife. It's his mother, who happens to be an ogre. So there's a mother-in-law presence that tries to cook and eat uh, the princess's children, and then tries to cook and eat the princess herself uh, before she's finally exposed for her horrible ogre-like nature and is boiled in her own sauce. So again, fun, terrifying, really, really fun. Now, finally, in 1812, the Grimm brothers get their hands on this. And the Grimm brothers, you know, they collected uh, a number of folk tales from uh, Germany, and they were kind of traveling around the countryside trying to gather without the flowery language of Perot or anything like that, without the literary influence, what the oral tradition of the down to earth Germanic folk were like. And they came across this Sleeping Beauty tale. And for a while, they didn't think they would include it in their fairy tale collection. And it was only once they were able to recognize some slight uh, similarities between the Sleeping Beauty tale and the Brunhilde tales from the saga of the Volsungs, which is a piece of Norse mythology, that they were able to say, this is definitively German in some sense and not French, and therefore we'll include it in our fairy tales. So they rename it Little Briar Rose, which we see as the uh, pseudonym of Aurora in the Disney version of the folktale, and they eliminate that creepy part two with the ogre trying to eat the children. Right, and that's the tale that has survived to Disney. Right. So definitely influence from Perot because he gives us the most um, sort of expansive and um, most literary version of the tale. But it's the Grimm's who are the first ones to say, we don't need this weird second part where it isn't just happily ever after. Where happily ever after comes with a semicolon rather than a period. Right. You know, in all of our, the discussion that we started about different theories of myths, I'd like to introduce a six. I already did five. Yeah. And the six is not as talked about from what I can tell in the study of myth as much anymore, but I think is worth mentioning when we look at the more grotesque and horrible aspects of the origin stories of Sleeping Beauty. And that theory comes from a great friend of this podcast. Oh my God, again? Sigmund Freud. Ugh. 
And Sigmund Freud in Totems and Taboos, he discusses that the purposes of myth psychologically, not the only purpose, but the reason that people tend to enjoy them is that they express totems and taboos that you cannot express in society without feeling shame or guilt or wrongness. A great example of this that he drew upon was Oedipus, who has sex with his mother and kills his father, and is the foundation by which he comes up with the Oedipal complex. Now, whether we can, we can certainly debate whether there is or is not stages of psychosexual development in men, and they do or do not want to kill their fathers and fuck their mothers. We could certainly debate that, and most would agree that that's probably not as apt as once thought. The idea that myths express certain taboos that you could not articulate, and that's one of the reasons they resonate, kind of comes to mind when I hear, I don't know, boiling your grandchildren and eating them. I hear raping a young girl and being able to walk away from it like there's nothing, like you did nothing wrong. All of these things, which are horrible things and absolutely um, crimes, but also societal taboos, can be expressed, can satisfy the ego, and so that the, the id doesn't feel the urge to go out and do these things, and that these stories can serve as a function of getting these taboos out of our subconscious minds. Well, and that's really interesting. And and the the, fun, the crazy thing about this is that this shit is commonplace when it comes to fairy tales. So I can read these early versions of Sleeping Beauty and be like, this is the most horrible fairy tale I've ever read. And then I remember that the juniper tree exists. And then I remember that the red shoes exists. And that fairy tales are full of these gross mutilations. They are full of assault. They are full of parental neglect and abuse. And they are full of just... It, horrifying elements that scare us to our very core. But to speak to your, uh, you know, analysis of the sort of Freudian interpretation of fairy tales, uh, that's a, a, a huge uh, piece of the scholarship around fairy tales. The person who made the fairy tale a, um, a, a scholarly endeavor for the most part, and who is still considered one of the leading authorities on how to interpret the fairy tale is a guy named Bruno Bettelheim, who uh, wrote a book called The Uses of Enchantment that essentially maps Freud uh, onto the fairy tale, who uncovers the psychosexual dynamic that's hiding under all of them. And it most certainly is, if you look close enough, but uh, diagnoses every heroine and hero with an Oedipal or Electra complex. And while I think there is tremendous value in doing so and in identifying those taboos that are worked out through fairy tale in a similar way that they are in myth, uh, I think in some ways it clouds our ability to interpret the fairy tale's true meaning. And there's no true consensus on what the meaning of fairy tales is. But sometimes we get lost in saying, oh, it's just giving voice to these societal taboos. Okay, so that's a fair point, but I, I, I want to push back a little bit because I don't think anyone, including Freud, is saying it's just. No, of course. It's an aspect of why it's pleasing to the ego. So when you're confronted with a story of a titan swallowing his own children and you're like, man, I can't wait to read more of this. 
it behooves us to ask, why is this appealing? Why does Sophocles still get taught? Why does Sleeping Beauty endure? What are the reasons that make it fundamentally pleasurable to the human psychology? I think Freud can answer the question of, well, because it expresses these taboos that, you know, exist within people that they can't express in any other way than through these narratives. We have to live them through a myth because we can't express them day to day, though they're here. The ugly aspect of that is that it confronts, it forces us to confront our own brutish animalistic nature living underneath the veneer of civilization. You know, we want to think of ourselves as civilized and say, no, we don't have these terrible brutish desires. I would never want to eat my child. What horrible parent would want to eat their child? Right. And Freud would say, no, every parent at some point feels that. And they have to suppress it because they're good parents. Right. Because you think that and feel that doesn't make you a bad parent. Right. You have to think and feel that in order to be a good parent. And you have to bring these things into balance and harmony. So where I am in contention with your rebuttal is that you said it's just and I don't think it's just. I think it's one part of the puzzle of why they exist and why we find them inherently enjoyable. But I would also add this layer to it. It's not part of Disney. Right. Disney's telling of these stories shies away from the brutal animalistic ones. The maybe the folklore that got passed verbally from generation to generation in uh, ancient, then medieval and then modern Germanic tribes and societies was the Disney story sanitizes those elements. And in fact, in many times, purges them, purges those more darker, more taboo expressive moments of them. And if Disney has purged them, and then since 1959, Sleeping Beauty has captivated generations, it begs a new question. If it's not an expression of taboo, why? Why Sleeping Beauty? What makes it work? Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, a question for the ages. I'm going to try to answer it on a couple of levels. And the first level is just to look at the movie itself, just to look at the movie Sleeping Beauty by Disney in 1959. I probably hadn't watched this since I was like eight years old until we rewatched it for the podcast. And I had this picture of it in my mind where I was like, it's boring. I don't care that much about it. She's a passive heroine. There's nothing to get me that interested in the movie. And then we put it on and I was just enchanted from the first frame. It's some of the most stunning and staggeringly beautiful uh, animation in the Disney canon. It's so creative. It has beautiful music based on, I think, a Tchaikovsky ballet uh, that just gets stuck in your head for days. The characters may not have very much of a of a like full heart to them, but they are. Uh, they're so charming, uh, from the fairies to even Maleficent, who I think is a fascinating heroine who I love to watch, who is terrifying and who is also sort of beautiful and alluring. Did you just call her a heroine? Maleficent. Oh, I'm sorry. You did. I'm confused you totally because did. we just watched Maleficent. <laughs> I mean, villain. Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to make sure. But I'm on her side because of of the movie Maleficent. Um, so I, it it really blows you away just in terms of the execution of this movie. I think it is done so so well, and it is a masterpiece of hand drawn animation. 
gorgeous. Agreed with all said points. So I will put that out there. That's why Sleeping Beauty works as a Disney movie. I think all criticisms leveled upon it, like it being a passive heroine, are absolutely valid. But I think everything that it does is in line with the sort of thin characterization that fairy tales afford us. Uh, Fairy tales don't give us anything in the way of characters, whether they are uh, heroes or villains or somewhere in between. And it's only very recently that Disney started giving us uh, well-defined characters or even the semblance of well-defined characters. But on another level, I want to answer your question as to why Sleeping Beauty works for us. And I think that's a little bit more subconscious and has to do with the development of the fairy tale over the centuries. And that's that... um, I did a lot of research into people who are scholars of fairy tales and how they sort of feel about them as academic uh, lines of study. And I came across this woman named Maria Tatar, uh, who I highly recommend if you are someone who is interested in folklore and fairy tales and likes good writing and just wants to understand why stories impact you. But one of the things that she articulates the most clearly in her writing is how fairy tales and children's literature and successful children's literature in particular live at the intersection of beauty and horror. How our uh, our fairy tales and the things that we are drawn into as children, the things that ignite our imagination the most are dazzling in a way, whether through uh, beautiful abstract language or, you know, shiny glittering images, but are also a little scary and a little secret and uh, evoke this sense of uh, terror within us that makes us want to look and see what's in the mystery box. That uh, all of us as children are kind of drawn to the glittery surfaces, but we're also drawn to those darker elements. So while Disney may sanitize a lot of the elements of early fairy tales that even strike fear in the heart of, of me, a full grown ass woman, I. Uh, Watching Sleeping Beauty and watching the demons dance around the fire and watching Maleficent transform into a dragon is still something that I find haunting. And as a child, I certainly found haunting and wanted to know more about. And it made me invest in that story because it didn't just show me something pretty. It dangled a pretty thing in front of my face and then also dangled this uncomfortable fear as part of it. And as a child, I was attracted to both. I really like that point a lot. Well, and demonic imagery aside, what is the Sleeping Beauty, the image of the Sleeping Beauty, if not the intersection of horror and beauty? It's the most beautiful woman you have ever seen in your entire life locked in a stasis that looks like death. She won't decay, so you're spared that and you get the sort of beautiful image, but she's also unmoving, unchanging, and unwakeable. So there is this line that is being straddled between... uh, eternal youth and a sleep of death that just the the very image and the very title uh, of Sleeping Beauty conjures up for us that is uh, eternal and yet uh, finite. Very great point. I I tend to largely agree with everything that you said. I, I In fact, no, I do. I agree with everything you just said. I think it lies somewhere 
in that balance between horror and beauty, between the aesthetics of lovely and the scare and terror of awful. I, I definitely think that's true. I'd like to add to it my own sort of interpretation of why I think this movie works, because I think we have to understand it contemporaneously as an American narrative. And as an American narrative, what does it add to me to our own sort of canon of myth? And I think there are a few things that I'd like to call out. And one, I'd like us to take a thought experiment. Imagine with me, Midnight Myth listeners, there is this ancient Greek myth or ancient Roman or ancient Norse where two kings who were blessed by a goddess to have fruitful kingdoms decided they wanted to merge their kingdoms. One had a princess, one had a prince. They get together and they betroth them to make one great super kingdom. The only problem is they make no supplications dedications or sacrifices to the very goddess that made them a great nations to begin with. The goddess is upset, so curses the daughter to eternal sleep on her 16th birthday. The the kings do everything in their power to try to undo this, but lo and behold, the gods' wills hold, and she becomes a sleeping beauty on her 16th birthday. However, the goddess recognizes that she was an innocent and allows a prince to unlock her curse with a kiss, having now learned to always give worship to the goddess. And that way you can always have a nice, just and happy and fruitful nation. That's the story of Sleeping Beauty. And it could easily be an ancient Greek Norse whatever myth. Well, and what's interesting is that you use the term goddess, which is not at all used in the language or the vocabulary of fairy tales, but does feel appropriate for Maleficent and the fairies. And here is my point of why I think this works now. I'd like to draw another piece of evidence. Thank you for going with that imaginary thought experiment. When Prince Philip gets his sword and when he gets his shield, there is a particular image on the shield, and that is the image of the Crusader cross, a cross that was used by knights in the Middle Ages to crusade against heathens, a cross that is typically worn on a tunic, but sometimes was also worn on a shield. Here is my point why I think this works as an American narrative. It takes the taboo elements of beauty and horror mixed together in one, and it Christianizes a what to me seems like an ancient story of a goddess getting retribution on hubristic humans. And it makes it about humans. It takes the goddess and makes her demonic. It takes her forces and makes them evil. And then it inverts it and makes it a Christianized patriarchal story of defeating the demon, of defeating the pagan goddess. And when we see Philip kill Maleficent and they focus in on the sword, it is intentionally animated a little differently to make it look like a cross. 
And he kills her in the form of a dragon, too, which uh, is one of the oldest mythological and legendary motifs in storytelling. Beowulf slays a dragon, but later that motif is absorbed into the Christian narrative as well. St. George, uh, the patron saint of England, is best known for slaying a dragon. So Christianity absorbs uh, the dragon slayer hero motif. So it's once again, we're seeing uh, this sort of ancient ancient mythic uh, archetype being uh, transmuted. Uh, I also think we started this episode by drawing lines between myth, legend, and fairy tale, and we've drawn a line from Sleeping Beauty to fairy tale and myth, but Christianizing and giving the Crusader sword to Philip also grounds us in legend. After all, it is the 14th century, they continue to say. So we're grounded in a time and a place and some uh, historical veracity as well as the sort of mythic and fairy tale archetypes. Well, here's my ultimate point. I don't think there is necessarily a line between myth and fairy tale. Sure, 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 sure. At the very least, as it pertains to Sleeping Beauty, I think it takes a fairly standardized ancient archetype of an angry goddess mad at humans who are not worshiping the goddess and doing right by the goddess. Think Athena turning Arachne into a a spider. Yeah. Yeah. You know, think of Hera cursing Heracles because uh, Zeus is the illegitimate father of this mortal. And here we have a story of a all-powerful, all-seeing, and knowing magical deity trying to curse a human child because they have been taken offense by the mortal humans. And that narrative, which exists in almost every pre-monotheistic religious culture, you see some form of a goddess who can be angry for some reason, now Christianized, turned into a horned demon rather than an actual goddess. And defeating this goddess is how we can, A, reinforce the medieval patriarchy, and B, allow these two nations to heal together, and three, reinforce Judeo-Christian morality. All of that had to have been very appealing to 1959 America. And I would say appealing still today. And I don't say this to tear down Sleeping Beauty, quite the opposite. It's one of my favorite of the classic Disney movies. And I ask myself, why? Why do I love this movie? Why did I love it as a kid? Why did I love it now? Because there's a dashing prince who stabs a dragon in the heart with a sword. That was the crux of why I really enjoyed it as a kid. Still is now. And that's because it reinforces these time-told narratives representing the shift away from matrilineal, polytheistic, to monotheistic and patriarchal. It also helps to explain why so many uh, feminist scholars of fairy tales say it's time to say goodbye to Sleeping Beauty as because it is frequently called out as one of the least feminist uh, Disney movies, the least feminist Disney princesses, and one of the uh, most damaging stereotypical uh, fairy tales uh, about the role of women. I personally uh, don't think that 
we can throw out any of these important cultural touchstones. I think they are all worth the kind of investigation that we're doing tonight, the kind of interrogation to uh, sort of understand why we're drawn to them, understand what they awaken in our deepest recesses of imagination. And I think it's worth calling out their faults, calling out the things that they do uh, that's damaging, but also recognizing that they have been a part of the cultural tapestry that defines uh, so many of us for so long that we can't, uh, we can't throw them away. Yeah. And Sleeping Beauty is fiercely patriarchal. Yeah. Not slightly, not subtly, but Fiercely. Most fairy tales are. I mean, think of, for example, the three fairy godmothers yeah. who take care of Aurora. And think of what the rep- their role is. They have almost godlike powers as well as Maleficent. However, they can only use them to like make tea. They can only use them to conjure cookies, make cakes, change the color of dresses, and then when need to guide the sword of a man. Yeah, it was like they have the ability to put an entire kingdom to sleep, but they spend 16 years not using power and just being domestic fairies. And then what do they have to do? They yeah, they have to give up magic for 16 years and pretend to just be like common women peasants and do things like women peasants. And so they have to strip themselves of this like near godlike power in order to like rear a child. And then you have Maleficent who has no motivation has, they don't even attempt to explain why Maleficent wants to curse Aurora other than they repeatedly say that she's evil and she calls herself evil. That's it. It's just because of evil. Yeah, she's the mistress of all evil. That's it. Just uh, why am I doing this? Because evil. They don't even try to give some semblance of a story for the villain. And then we have Aurora. And you called it. She is the most passive of heroines. Yeah, I mean, she spends a huge part of the movie asleep. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's not a feminist fairy tale, but I think it's worth the kind of scrutiny that we're giving it. And, uh, you know, to look at it with a contemporary eye and to, uh, you know, I, I, I would like to just talk briefly about the Maleficent franchise, but uh, to give a contemporary eye to what it was saying about the America in which this movie was made and what it was saying about the cultures that produced uh, this fairy tale in the first place. And I think that's valuable. Yeah. Before we get there, one last final point I'd like to make about um, reframing the goddess as the demon. You had millions of humans worshiping polytheistic pantheons that doesn't just go away it doesn't just stop in fact for more periods of our history as human civilization we were polytheistic pagans than we were monotheistic judeo-christians and part of the reason that changed is stories like sleeping beauty yeah amazing i think that's tremendous insight and thank you so much Um, I just want to turn briefly to Maleficent uh, because, as we know, in October, uh, the second installment of the Maleficent franchise is coming out. It's called Maleficent Mistress of Evil. And we just recently watched the first Maleficent movie. Um, I... I enjoyed it and I thought it... We should say spoiler wall. Yeah, just a slight spoiler wall for Maleficent here. I I did enjoy it. I I didn't think it was a, like, 
home run of a movie, but I just do want to shine a light on some of the things that it did and how it lives in the tradition of the Sleeping Beauty fairy tale throughout the centuries that it has existed. Um, and that's that from the outset, um, Maleficent herself, who is framed as the uh, protagonist of this narrative, who is given a backstory, who is given a relationship to the kingdom and a relationship to the king who becomes Aurora's father, is framed as a survivor of something akin to sexual assault. Uh, and I think this owes a hat tip to the original Sleeping Beauty fairy tales. In Maleficent, uh, she falls in love with Stefan, who will become the king, and he deceives her, uh, and they have a, a relationship, and he cuts off her wings. He mutilates her. He drugs her in yeah. her sleep, drugs her when she's asleep, is going to murder her, but instead clips her wings and then uses those wings as evidence that he killed her so he could emerge to be the king. And Maleficent has to go on without this part of her body that... Uh, you know, used to be part of her and has to live with that and has to learn to forge a, a path forward. And she does so with quite a bit of resentment. And that is uh, what becomes the motivation for why she does what she does to Aurora. Um, I think it's, it's really interesting to frame the narrative that way in the legacy of uh, of fairy tales, not just Sleeping Beauty, but the Red Shoes and the Juniper Tree and the Little Mermaid and tales that deal very heavily with uh, gore and graphic violence and mutilation of the body. Uh, these really terrifying and taboo fears like we've talked about before. Um, and I think it also, you know, nods again to the fact that the Sleeping Beauty tale historically has dealt with sexual assault and has dealt with uh, women not having power over their sexual agency. So it does have a woman trying to take that back. And that I, I do commend it for. Um, and then Maleficent 2, it looks like, is going to deal with a mother-in-law figure. So while I don't think we're going to see a cannibalistic mother-in-law ogre trying to boil her children or her grandchildren, uh, I am curious to see uh, how the next Maleficent movie will deal with the legacy of Sleeping Beauty. How do we feel at the end of our episode here? How do we feel about the role of Disney in shaping the modern fairy tale slash myth legacy because we look at sleeping beauty and the reason we're talking about it now has a lot to do with two main points in history one the Grimm brothers writing it down and two disney taking it and turning it into an animated movie how do we feel about that in general wow um so there's a startling lack of consensus about how old fairy tales actually are there are uh, a camp of scholars who believe that fairy tales come from the 16th and 17th centuries in the literary works of Charles Perrault and Hans Christian Andersen in the 19th century, uh, and so on. And then there's another camp, including a couple of researchers named Jamie Tarani and Sarah Grassa da Silva, I believe, who did a study uh, that they uh, believed to find evidence revealed that some fairy tales, including Beauty and the Beast and Rumpelstiltskin, could be as old as 4,000 years. Some could be dated back to the Bronze Age. These are stories that, if you uh, believe the evidence they put forth, have been around as long as language. And yet, 
the definitive and authoritative versions of these fairy tales have been created in the last 70 years. That's crazy. And I think a part of that, a huge part of that, is due to mass media and the way that the media landscape has changed. And I feel very conflicted about it. While I am grateful to have had access to stories like Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella, The Little Mermaid, Snow White, Beauty and the Beast, through a medium that I, as a child of the 90s, was immersed in, I also I sometimes watch these movies and miss the beauty and horror, miss the intersection of horror and beauty that is truly found uh, in the abstraction of language. And I, uh, uh, yeah, I just feel very conflicted about it. There's a moment or two where I pause and I think how much of my media consumption and how much of the money that I put into media and consumption goes directly goes to back to Disney. And it's a lot. And I wonder about corporate consolidation for for-profit fairy tales and how and if that can be good. Now, for my own personal private experience, the uh, interaction with narratives like Sleeping Beauty have brought joy to my life, tangible joy, and they have helped me grow and they've helped me to uh, enrich my life and also have reinforced certain values and challenged others. And I don't think there is a blanket response at like, no, Disney has too much power to say this is what a folktale is and we all go along and it's wrong. We should break it up. I don't think it's that simple, but nor do I think it should be, well, Disney is altruistic in its motives and we should just accept Disney as the authority. After all, Disney's doing it and we all love it. And I think there's a nuance here in understanding the power of the dollar in telling a great story as a very new phenomenon in human storytelling. This is the first era. And when I say this, I mean, broadly speaking, since, you know, the last like, you know, 200 and some years where there have been huge amounts of money in the telling of narratives and in the telling of stories, that storytelling was not always a multi thousand to multi-million to now multi-billion corporate conglomerate empires. And I think it behooves us to ask some challenging questions. And challenging question one is, what role does Disney have in shaping our culture? And B, or one, what role does it have? And two, are we comfortable with that role? And I think we really should ask those questions because the Disney of the Sleeping Beauties was telling a conservative version of storytelling. And that conservative version was pushing certain values and those values are present. Now, whether those values are good or bad is a different conversation, but do we really want a corporation selling us those values and masking it as entertainment? I don't know the answer to that. I really don't. And as much as I participate in, and this podcast could largely be described as Disney adjacent because we talk about Marvel, we talk about Star Wars, we talk about Pixar, and we talk about Disney a lot. It begs the question, what's its role 
now that it is the largest storytelling company in the history of humanity. And I think we should ponder it. But I don't have the answer. (laughs) Yeah, I think the answer is probably hard to come by. Um, I want to close with uh, a quote from the scholar that I mentioned before, Maria Tatar, about the power of fairy tales. Um, And knowing that they come from probably an early oral tradition and were likely told around fires as uh, children and adults alike huddled for warmth and listened to these incredibly uh, powerful and exciting and thrilling tales. Uh, Maria Tatar says, quote, The fire reminds us of the ignition power of fairy tales, their ability to excite the imagination and to provide light in the dark. And with the fire, you also have these shadows where fearful things might lurk. The tales not only have this magical, glittery sparkle, but also a dark, horrific side that stages our deepest anxieties and fears. And until next time, guys, be kind. Be kind. Be kind.